This is Conceptions and Misconceptions in Studying the Gospels with Dr. Dan Gertner, Professor of New Testament Studies at Gateway Seminary. I'm Tyler Sanders, and today we're looking at the calming of the storm in, uh, in Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. Uh, Dr. Gertner, we're calling this podcast Conceptions and Misconceptions of Studying the Gospels. Could you tease that out a little bit? Like, what does that mean for the Gospels in general? Why are we talking about that? And, and tell us what, what that means regarding this passage, too. Yeah, uh, studying the Gospels, we, we all believe that the Gospels are accounts about Jesus. We all believe, or many of us believe, that these are the inspired Word of God, that they're historically reliable, and that they're, I, I believe that they're completely without error in everything that they affirm. And yet, whenever we come to interpreting them, we, we try to look at them as, uh, and apply them as metaphors. So we sort of pull them out, uh, pull the stories out as though, and we wouldn't actually say this, but we treat them as though they're not historical, as though they're mm. symbolic of something, as though I'm one of the disciples and that these, this inclement weather that arises on the, on the Sea of Galilee is representative of a hardship that is occurring in my life and that the miracle that Jesus performs is Jesus creating uh, tranquility in the midst of my hardships. Mm. And maybe that is an appropriate application or maybe that isn't. But the first step is we need to try to understand what the author is trying to say to those original readers, uh, like we do with any other text in the Bible. So uh, when we talk about conceptions and misconceptions, we try to understand, like with any text, what the author is saying to the original reader. And then we try to see how does that then communicate to us and to our churches. What do you think the first step is for a passage like this to getting a better grip on that? Is it the context? Sure. Like it, well, like with any passage, understanding the context and knowing that, you know, these, because they're gospels, they're obviously about Jesus, no matter what's going on. There's something about Jesus, even when he's telling mm. us, when the gospel authors are telling us about John the Baptist or Herod the Great, it's always in the context of Jesus. But keeping in mind, too, and, and John, the Gospel of John hints at this when John says, you know, Jesus did many other things as well. I suppose if they were all written down, the whole world wouldn't have books to uh, to contain them all. Yeah. Um, Jesus, it takes maybe three or four hours to read through the Gospel of Matthew. And when you consider that Jesus in his public ministry lived, did about three years of of uh life in his public ministry, and you get the sense that he's constantly being crowded by people. He's teaching his disciples in private. Sometimes he's on his own. But um, if you were to just roughly calculate the amount of hours that he was doing public ministry and ministry with his disciples and compare it to what we actually have in the Gospels, it's a minuscule amount mm -hmm. of what Jesus actually said and did that we actually have in the gospel. So the gospel authors, my point is that the gospel authors are preserving for us just a tiny fraction, maybe a, a half of 1% at best of what he said and did. So they're always selecting, adapting, and arranging things. It's like if you and I were to go to a, a major sporting event or go to the opening ceremonies at the Olympics, we can be at the same ceremony and write down an account, a five-page account of the exact same thing, and our accounts can have some similar things, but be very, very different sure. uh, and be completely accurate. So, yeah. uh, but they're going to be very different. Um, so, we recognize that the different gospel authors are going to 
have their different emphases. They might have things in different order, but they can all still be completely reliable. So we keep in mind as we read the Gospels that the Gospel authors are very selective depending on their interests. So what they present is for their purposes. So we just keep that in mind as we read it. And of course, we look at context. So when we read sort of the stilling of the storm, we look at where Jesus is coming from and where he's going to go. But yeah. ultimately, we look at this passage and then we see sort of what, what what's happened and then what's going to happen next. Yeah. Okay. Well, do you want to get into the text? Sure. Yeah. Let's get okay. into Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. And this is a miracle story, obviously, because mm. Jesus performs a miracle. Yeah. And we're going to notice a couple things that are common in miracle stories that sort of help us to interpret interpret them. And, and I'll, I'll note those as, as we go through this. Okay. Yeah. So I'm reading from the ESV. Uh, and when he, that is Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? So, among the things that we notice in this, and this is where we see that's common in miracle stories, we, we try to note, well, note first of all, what occurs in the miracle and how people respond to the miracle. Because hmm. we'll see we'll see people respond in different ways to, to Jesus' miracle. Hmm. Um, we want to say, Jesus can calm the storms in my life. But the way the people in the boat that day responded is what Matthew wants us to know. And yeah. look at the way they respond. Yeah, they seem like shocked. They're shocked. So, and they go to Jesus and they wake him up. Now, how he's sleeping, I don't know. Yeah. But they say, save us, Lord. And whatever it is, we don't know what they're expecting. But whatever it is that they're expecting, what he does is not what they were expecting. Yeah. So maybe they just wanted him to grab a bucket or do something. Mm. Yeah. Um, we have no idea. But what he does is um, the way he helps, they wanted him to help, but the way he helps is he rebukes the winds and the sea. And that probably is not what they expected. So yeah. he, he he says something. He uses some kind of words. And yeah. the same language is used that he uses for demons. When he tells mm. demons to get out of people, he rebukes mm. them. Yeah. And... The, the amazing thing is, I mean, you and I can try this next time the, the weather gets nasty in Southern California, right. you can try to rebuke it or, you know, go out to the ocean on a bad day and yeah. see what happens. It's not going right. to be terribly effective. Right. But right. with Jesus, it, it works immediately. Yeah. The, and there was a great calm. So, and the people respond to that and, and they, and they're not responding in terms of what it means for them. Yeah. They're responding in terms of the identity of the person who just did this. Yeah. And that's what that's what Matthew is trying to evoke for us mm. by showing us how these people responded. Yeah. So this passage is about Jesus and it's trying to get us to see something. So we see Jesus doing something. 
he's controlling nature with these words. Yeah. Which obviously makes us think of who? Yeah, of God. Like, it makes us think of God. And now you're thinking, yeah, like, well, you're kind of making that up. And then the, the people, the men marveled, and then they raised the question, not who is this? They, they know who this is. They know yeah. this is Jesus. And they know it's a man. But, but the ESV says, what sort of man? Mm-hmm. They know he's a man, but they're not. They, they've seen a whole bunch of men, but not not a man like this. This yeah. is a variety of mankind that they've not seen before. So it, they're raising this identity question. So the text, Jesus performs a miracle, and when you see a miracle story, there's a performance of a miracle, and you, the gospel authors almost always give attention to the method. Mm-hmm. How does Jesus do it? Mm-hmm. Like if if it's a leper. You don't touch lepers. They make you unclean, and then you can't participate in temple and all this other stuff. Yeah. You just stay away from people. Jesus touches them. Yeah. Um, when it's a miracle, he uses words. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he or um, you know, just like with the healing of, I think it's a centurion's daughter. Just say the word, and I know she'll be fine. Right. You know that sort of thing. That's all you need to do. Yeah. The means by which he does it is key. And then the response of the people who experience it. Those are really the keys of understanding this. So this passage, and then, so Jesus does a God thing. And then the the people who are there raise the question about what sort of man is this? Mm -hmm. And so we as readers have been set up to see Jesus is God. Yeah. Now, notice where it says that Jesus is God in this passage. Yeah. Absolutely nowhere. Yeah, it doesn't explicitly say it. It doesn't say that. But that's how gospels work. Yeah. It doesn't say that. But it screams it out. Jesus is God. But it doesn't actually say that. It's much more subtle. If this were Paul, this would be, you know, a 13 sentence run on participle or something like that, screaming out that Jesus is the image of the invisible God who's sustaining. But but this is these are gospels. These are written after Paul. Hmm. So readers of Matthew probably know all these things that Paul has taught. And they're reading these narratives and seeing this in the flesh, so to speak. Yeah. And do you think that's why, or one of the reasons why the gospels work this way? That they're, they're that not the as ex- that, yeah, that they're not as explicitly just saying at the end of the story, and Jesus is God. It's because there's kind of a framework already in place. There is a framework already in place. Yes, I I do think so. And I think some of where we get that is just sort of a little bit of reflecting on the chronology of early Christianity. Mm. And what I mean by that is um, we know that the first thing in early Christianity was Jesus was born. Of course, he lived perfect life. Um, He um, was crucified. He rose again. He ascended. And then there's the events of the book of Acts In, in the middle of the events of the book of Acts. Then there is, um, you know, the conversion of Paul. Mm-hmm. The, Paul is doing his missionary journeys. He's writing his letters. And then sometime after the end of the book of Acts, um, Paul dies. And then after the end of the book of Acts, um, Paul dies, and then the Gospels are written. So mm-hmm. by the time the, the first Gospel is written, it's probably Mark, Paul's letters, uh, so Paul's evangelism uh, missionary journeys are done. Yeah. Um, and the gospel's already been spread around the Mediterranean area into Asia Minor and all these other places. And some of them by Paul, some of them even before Paul. 
even got there. Like we read the book of Titus, and it seems like um, the gospel got to Crete even before Paul got there. Hmm. So we're, we're not really sure. Maybe from the um, um, the Spirit coming at Pentecost in, in Acts mm. chapter 2. We're not really yeah. sure. But so anyway, my point is that somehow the gospel is getting spread, people are getting saved, churches are being planted all around, and people are hearing about the gospel. Paul's circulating his letters, and his letters are getting circulated all over the place. People are reading it. Churches are growing. And then the, the first gospel gets written. Mm-hmm. So... The Gospels, uh, and we get confused sometimes because the Gospels narrate the events that are first, the life of Jesus. Yeah. But they're written to people who already know the key events. Yeah. So like 1 Corinthians 15, that talks about all the essentials of the Gospel message, you know, for, um, you know, I receive what I passed on to you and so forth. Those are things that are already in the churches and circulating. Yeah. So we also see a hint of this from the book of... uh, Luke, and this mm. is helpful. We can M- Matthew doesn't say it this way, but Luke really tips his hand, and I think all the gospels are doing a similar thing. Luke is just more explicit about it, and he's more pointed. This is Luke chapter one, mm-hmm. one through four. This is how how gospels, I think, in general work. Not all are the same, but in general, this tips his hand. This Luke tips his hand a little bit to help us see what gospels in the in the first century were doing. So Luke 1, 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So there are a couple things we get from this. Mm -hmm. One is that Luke acknowledges that other people were compiling narratives about Jesus before him. Yeah. Two is that Luke is telling us that he's writing for a particular person Mm -hmm. and that his account some, maybe it's chronological, maybe it's not chronological, but there is a rhyme or reason for how yeah, he puts it together. Order. There's yeah. an orderly account. The other thing is verse four, his purpose, mm-hmm. that he may have certainty concerning the things he has been taught. Yeah. In other words, Theophilus, already he's already been taught something. Yeah. And the purpose of, of Luke's gospel, at least, is to provide some undergirding for what he's already been taught. And yeah. most likely the other gospels are doing a similar thing, if not the exact same thing, at least a similar thing. They're yeah. written to Christians who are already who already know the gospel message, if not the complete story. Yeah. And so in a, in a passage like this where we're seeing this narrative of Jesus calming the storm, you know, really the, the big point of this is that someone is supposed to understand better who Jesus is. Exactly. And exactly. I, I, I think what's interesting, we talked a little bit about context earlier, but the next narrative in here reflects this in kind of a, uh, uh, an interesting way uh, because we, we see people respond to Jesus very differently um, following something we would probably think is a miracle too. Sure. Yeah. The, um, so the, the two Jesus heals two demon possessed men. So we, yeah, let's take a look at that. They came. So they, they, uh, what sort of manner even so at the end of verse 27 
back in Matthew chapter 8, verse 27, what sort of man did even the winds and sea obey him? Notice that, and this is typical of narratives in the Gospels, they don't stop to reflect on it. Yeah. They just move on. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he came to the other side, this is the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Mm-hmm. So they started out in Capernaum. Capernaum is on the northwest shore. They're now on the southeast shore in the country of the Gadarenes. Mm-hmm. And the Gadarenes, as we'll see, is a Gentile area. Capernaum mm-hmm. is a Jewish area. Gadarenes is a Gentile area, and we'll see why in just a minute. Um, they go to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes. Two demon-possessed men meet him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. So they're in tombs. Tombs are unclean. Mm -hmm. Um, People visited tombs. Jews visited tombs regularly. Um, And that's common. They became unclean. That was a normal part of Jewish life. Mm. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us? before the time. So so these demons know something that that the rest of people don't. Yeah. Um now a herd of pigs was feeding at some distance from them and the demons begged him saying if you cast us out send us away into the herd of pigs. And this is what gives us an indication this is gentile territory. Mm-hmm. Cuz pigs are unclean. Yeah, and they're hurting um, them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he said, go. Uh, so they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. And then here comes to your point, the response. So Jesus mm-hmm. just performed a miracle. Um, the herdsmen fled, and going into the city, told everyone, Uh, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave the region. So what's interesting, you notice the statement that Matthew throws in there in verse 33, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Don't miss the fact that, yeah, no more pork chops for dinner. Right. Yes, their whole their livelihood is gone. Yeah. But these men that have been blocking their way yeah. and have been in there are healed and in their right mind. Yeah. So they, they told them. Yeah. And they still responded and asked Jesus to leave. Yeah. A totally different response. Totally different response. Yeah. What it seems to me like these two passages next to each other, they're we're supposed to see them in context with one another, right? Yep. So it's really telling us kind of two things, really, right? It's telling us, I think both of these reflect that Jesus is God and that he has authority. I mean, in one, we're seeing authority over nature, and in the others, we're seeing authority over demons, but. Yes. Past that, we're seeing two different groups of people respond completely differently. So why do you think Matthew put these next to each other? Like, what, what are we supposed to recognize in these two different responses? Well, let's keep looking and let's, mm. let's look even further. Let's look back a little bit. Mm. We can see 
um, going back to the beginning of chapter eight, and I have an ESV Bible with some subject headings. It's kind of helps me a little bit. Um, when Jesus cleanses a leper, mm. um, Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him. I am willing, be clean. The leprosy's gone. Um, and he commands him to go offer the gift that Moses commanded. Then the faith of the centurion. Um, the centurion's servant is suffering terribly. And um, this is where the centurion says, in essence, I have people under authority. All you need to do is say, say the word and um, you don't need to come to my house. No need. Yeah. And so the centurion understands authority and he understands that Jesus is the authority. So uh, then Jesus heals many quotation from Isaiah. Mm -hmm. And then there's the, the teaching of um, the scribe comes up and says to him, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. Mm -hmm. And then there's the cost of following Jesus. So all of this is about responding to Jesus and following Jesus. And some are positive, some are negative. We see the healing of the, the stilling of the storm, displaying Jesus as God. We see the two demon-possessed men responding negatively. Let's keep going in chapter nine. So we see Jesus as God with the stilling of the storm. We see mixed results with the two demon-possessed men. Mm -hmm. Now let's look at the paralytic in chapter nine. Yeah. They, they get into the boat and cross over the other side. So now they're back over again into the northwest shore. They're in Capernaum. Mm -hmm. They bring a paralytic. Um, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Verse 3, the scribe said, this man is blaspheming. And Mark's account says, uh, and rightly... Who can, who can forgive sins but God alone? Mm -hmm. And Matthew, I think his readers know that. Yeah. Mark needs to explain that for his Gentile readers. Yeah. Um, the charge of blasphemy is you're, you're claiming something that only God can do. Yeah. And, and, well, that's right. He is claiming something that only God can do because he's God. Yeah. And that's the missing piece, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Jesus, knowing their thoughts... Um, why do you say, think even in your hearts for which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But to say, but that you may know that the son of man and here's here, this son of man thing is a hyperlink back to Daniel seven. Mm -hmm. um, I think, I don't remember if we talked about this before. It's a little bit of a side note. Mm -hmm. um, has authority on earth to forgive sins. Um, so which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. I can yeah. say your sins are forgiven, Tyler, and yeah. congratulations. And nobody has a sin meter that they could say, oh, yeah. wow, he's clean. Right. Um, it, but, but if, but if you, if you can't walk yeah. and I say rise and walk and you do it, that's a whole different ball game. Yeah, for sure. So what Jesus does is he does both. Right. And in doing so, he demonstrates that he has the authority to forgive sins. 
Yeah. So he rose and went home and the crowd saw it. They were afraid and glorified God who had given such authority to men. So we see Jesus performing miracles and demonstrating that he is God. We see this in the stilling of the storm that he is God. Mm-hmm. And so what we get as a readers, we get to chapter nine, verse nine. Mm-hmm. And this is um, part of the organization of Matthew's genius. Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And we often think, you know, we speculate, well, what did Matthew know about Jesus? Mm. And well, if it's in Capernaum, it's a small town, maybe 12, 1500 people at the most. Mm. Some people say half that he probably knew Jesus. Jesus probably knew him. Mm. But Matthew says absolutely nothing about that. And for the reader's purpose, that's entirely irrelevant. Yeah. Because you and I as readers has been set up that here's this guy who calmed the storm and his disciples are falling at at his feet saying, what sort of man is this? He just healed this guy and forgave his sins. And he's doing these God things. So you and I as readers are at the edge of our seat. So that by the time he as God goes walking by this tax collector's booth. We as readers are on the edge of our seats and ready to go. As soon as he says, follow me, I'll say where I'm yeah. coming. Yeah. So that's how it fits within the narrative that yeah. you and I as readers are being pulled along and compelled to follow him yeah. so that whenever he says things like as the warning, he, he gives fair warning at the beginning um, that foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, yeah. but the son of man has no, nowhere to rest his head and let the bed, dead bury their own dead. So that's fair warning of what you're in for. Mm-hmm. Let me show you who I am. Yeah. I'm going to steal the storm. I'm going to cast out demons and I'm going to, I'm going to forgive this man's sin and I'm going to heal the paralytic, but then I'm going to call you and you, and we'll see how you respond. Yeah. That's so, really the two so, key parts, right? There's like a demonstration of authority, which is saying it's, it, that demonstration is this is defining that Jesus is God, but yes. also there's the call to follow. Yes. And it's not just, it, it certainly is a, an ontological statement about who, mm. that Jesus is in fact God, mm. but it is also that for Matthew, Jesus is Emmanuel. He is mm. God with us. Yeah. That that for the 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 guy who is the the paralytic who is with Jesus that got, that day who's looking Jesus in the eye he is God with us he's not just the the deity who's in the temple in Jerusalem that you can't go to because you're paralyzed you can't even you can't even go yeah. there you can sit outside and collect and collect money as yeah. a beggar but you can't go in there yeah um or, you know, women who can't go, who can only go so far mm-hmm. and once a month can't even go anywhere near. Mm-hmm. So um, this is God with us. So yeah. th- we we can sometimes, you know, at our desks and in our studies in our homes think, OK, that's it's it's nice to think that Jesus is God. But remembering that these people who are leaving this legacy for us in the gospel of Matthew have looked this man in the eye and seen yeah that this is God with us yeah. is a totally different thing. Yeah. Um, and call the call to come follow him is, um, is, is, is a, 
uh, is a compelling thing when we think, let's just say, for example, we think of the Gospel of Mark. You know, early church tradition says that the Gospel of Mark was written by John Mark, who is writing the memoirs of Peter. Hmm. And and that that term memoirs uh, is, a, is a, I think, a compelling one because it's writing sort of his his life book yeah. um, of his remembrances of, of his interactions with Jesus, the good, the bad, and especially the ugly, yeah. but uh, that draws us to Christ. Yeah. So it, it's as if, um, you know, if I were writing my memoirs of my, my walk with Christ, it would not paint. It, I don't know that I would have the character or the faith to, to paint all the ugliness right. that Mark, that Mark has, yeah. but it shows it shows us just how compelling um, the person of Christ is mm. that of everything that these men could have passed down to the generations of Christians who, who knows how many generations they thought were going to be reading this stuff um, that, that this is the legacy they decided to leave for us. That's why I think that it's so important that we hang on every single word, every, every single syllable that is in these texts, because yeah. these have been preserved for, for us from antiquity. Yeah. Well, maybe as we get close to wrapping up here, maybe we can kind of take an, another high view of this this passage again. Wood, one of the things that we're we're wanting to hit in this passage and really go over is like this, you know, ideas of conceptions and misconceptions, and I I think ultimately we're wanting to take that back towards the church. So so maybe kind of in like a summary kind of format, like what do you think the best way for us to approach this text in the context of churches? If we're teaching this in Sunday school or preaching on this or whatever, how do we get this message to the church? Well, I think the first thing is to remember that we, we always want to work towards application. Uh, and this is just in terms of method and how we study the gospels. Um, we always want to lead towards application, but sometimes working towards application requires some patience. Hmm. And by that, I mean, if we if we move too quickly to this application, we can sometimes miss what the authors are saying. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is we start to we, we, we start thinking of metaphor because we, we start thinking Jesus can come in storms in my life or, you know, the David and Goliath thing. And we we jump there because we want to apply. And that's yeah. a great thing. But in our eagerness to apply, we can miss things. Mm -hmm. So let's. Just And so the, the message I would say to people who are teaching and preaching on a regular basis is to be patient and to try to understand what the author is saying to the original reader in the first instance. And, and just let that simmer on the back burner for a little bit. On low heat, let it simmer uh, nice and slow um, and, and ruminate on that for a little bit. Um, we can... and, and the difficulty is everybody's in a hurry and there are so many pressures, but if you can let that ruminate for just a little bit and think about, take that extra step of what is this author saying to the original readers? It can open up doors to what you will eventually get to. We're, we're good at application. Yeah. The, the finding points of how it applies to me is fine. The hard part is that intermediate step, which is kind of a historical one, mm. but it's difficult. We need, to, we need to start with observation. What does the text say? Then we look at what does the text say to the original reader before we get to application. And if we, if we don't get that right, what the author is saying to the original reader, we will get the application wrong. Yeah. If we, if we don't get that right, 
we don't get it right what the author is saying to the original reader, we will get the application wrong. Yeah. And so it's worth spending a little bit of extra time letting that simmer on the back burner for a little while to think, what on earth is Matthew trying to say to his readers? Uh, what's John saying to his readers? Why did he say it that way and not this way? Not just what's my favorite word here or what's my interest or what do I find most compelling? Mm. That's great. But we want... I want my heart to be formed by the word, not 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 my heart to pull words out of the scripture that are my favorite. Yeah. I I want I want my heart to be attuned to the scriptures and to the priorities of scriptures. What things are emphasized? What things are repeated? Yeah. What is the author trying to communicate? And so in that respect a little bit of healthy distance um can can help us to read it a little bit more clear. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes familiarity, I think of the illustration with my wife. Sometimes if I, I think I know her really, really well, and sometimes I just, I just don't listen to her quite as well as I should, because mm. I think I know what she's going to say. Mm. And, and so I kind of tune around a little bit and that's to my shame. And so just being a little bit more attentive um, and trying to understand what it's really saying um, can be helpful. Yeah. I think it's a really good word. And I think it's a really encouraging thing for us to wrap up on. Dr. Gardner, thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to the next episode. My pleasure.